Thanks for tuning in to Upward Way Podcast. If you're looking to be spiritually blessed, moved, and inspired, there is no doubt you are in the right place. On our show, guests recount their encounter with Christ and how their lives have been transformed through the grace and love of God. And now, please welcome our host. Hello and welcome to Upward Way. I am your host, Marlon Walters. My guest today is the pastor of the Northampton Central Seventh-day Adventist Church, Pastor Pardon Chenjere. Welcome to Upward Way. Thank you. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here for this interview. And I am very much delighted to have you. And I know that the audience are in for a treat today. So, Pastor, for the first question, I just want to go to the start. Where and when did your faith journey begin? My faith journey started in Africa, in Zimbabwe, where I was born, in Harare. In my late teens, I started looking for some meaning in life. As far as life is concerned, I was looking for something tangible, something that I can say I've got a purpose to be alive uh, because I'm doing this and that. And that journey led me to discover that there is a church called the Adventist. And in that church, through the teachings, I accepted Christ as my personal savior. Not that I wasn't really a Christian, but um, the teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist, I think, developed uh, uh, my relationship with God deeper. Sounds pretty <laughs> simple and straightforward, but I know your encounter with Christ is not a simple one. So as you you'd said, you were in your late teens going into your early 20s. What would have been, let us say, some of the challenges you would have faced as you embraced this newfound faith? You know, when you are searching for a purpose for your existence, you try so many things. So I tried a lot um, and I couldn't fit in, you know, trying to be like everybody else, enjoying yourself like other young people. And I struggled to fit in and, um, and I realized that I don't know what I was looking for. And um, this led me to start thinking about who brought me here in, in this life after all. And I could only think of God with my limited Christian understandings. I could still go back to God. So I decided to go into search for the truth. And I suppose you, you found it. One of the... I think it was the first book I got when I became a Christian was called A Search for Truth. I don't know if you have ever encountered that book, but I remember sitting and reading that book and a church sister said to me, why are you reading this book? Haven't you found the truth? <laughs> I, I found that quite interesting. But have you ever read that book? Not that one in particular. I read quite a lot of books. I read the writings of Ellen White. I think I read... Um, straight up eight books, one after each other. 
Uh, because what happened now is I was searching for the truth. I came to a point where I had, I had a health problem and was admitted into a hospital. So I stayed in hospital for a long time. While I was in hospital, uh, one of the, the patients in the hospital just handed me the book called Steps to Christ. I had never enjoyed a Christian book because the books that I had been reading before, they were just nice, but they couldn't really challenge me directly, like prompt something inside me. But this author, Ellen White, is I read Steps to Christ. You know, when you're reading a book and you turn to the back cover and read again about the author, or you're looking again, like, who is this person? I felt like I'm, this book was like talking to me personally. I felt like I was talking to someone. It was like a one-on-one. So I kept asking more books. And then the next book, Desire of Ages, Patricks and Prophets, Prophets and Kings. I read a lot. Christian Service. I think there were about 10 or 8 books that I read. And I felt like, yeah, I've learned a lot within a short period. <laughs> Yeah, that's how powerful the book can be. Yes, that is indeed a very powerful book. You grew up in Harare, Zimbabwe, but today you are in Northampton, that's in the UK. So could you just walk me through that transition? You know, How did that come about for you leaving Zimbabwe, going to the UK? Yes, um, so what happened is, after my hospital experience, I then started having Bible studies with uh, church people. I had to identify Adventists. In fact, I had friends in Adventist church already. So I, I just connected with them and said, why didn't you tell me about this? Uh, and, and from there, I became a Seventh-day Adventist, baptized, got married. And then life was becoming a big bit of a challenge in Zimbabwe. In terms of economy, um, yes, I was working for telecommunications, but the money that we were earning was not just good enough. We wanted to buy a house. And we said, okay, let's just go anyway. <laughs> let's just go anyway. And the UK was the last place that we wanted to be. It's a long story on its own, but we, that's how we found ourselves here. And we've been here for 21 years. And when we came, we thought we were going to work for two years. Two years was enough time to raise money to buy a house. Here we are, 21 years later. Yes, sounds interesting. You know, many times persons think about transitioning, say, I'm going to spend two, three, or four years. But as is so often the case, we end up spending our lives, you know, on yeah. land. What was it like? When you just arrived, you know, what were some of the uh, hoops you had to jump through, hurdles you had to overcome? Um, Zimbabwe was a British colony. So in terms of the education system, so education brings some values, certain values as well, and certain practices, conduct, they are similar. But of course, it's UK is not Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is not the UK, as it were. So one of the first hurdles was that the society, I found it very closed. 
coming from Zimbabwe, where if I stand in a street and whistle, my friends would just come out of their homes, you know, growing up, and we just got to play football. Here, you can whistle as much as you want. <laughs> I think anyone will come. So a closed society where you don't even know your neighbor, you know, I'll be known in my street, um, the whole street, I would know everyone. If someone new comes into the, into the street, we will know that there's a, there's a visitor who is living at that number. So a closed society where you mind your own business. So what, what I learned from there is that in Zimbabwe, our Christianity as an Adventist, I felt like we were, were looking out for each other in terms of you can't just decide to do whatever you want. There are people who say, tell you off or... If you want to go to work on Sabbath, there are people, you will not even, even if you want, you will not go because there are people who are managing you. You're managing each other somehow. But here, everyone minds their own business. But then, positive thing that, I, that came out of that is that I think you can uh, assert yourself in a very genuine way. You can make your own decision without any pressure. You can actually identify yourself who you are without anyone watching. Because sometimes when you're in a society that is open where you are interdependent in everything, sometimes you're just growing because others are growing in a certain way. But here I found out that you, your identity comes out. You actually discover who you are because there's no one who's going to call you to find out why you didn't come to church. It's up to you. And no one is going to follow you how, you, how you are dressed, you know. I remember as a young person the other day, I was not dressed properly. Some people took me aside, set me down, you know, growing up. But here, there was nothing like that. that these are some of the impressions I got that here you really have to come out and identify yourself without impressing anyone. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be a Christian. If not, it's not. It's black and white. You choose there's no like, oh, we are all Christians. No. If you are one, it will be seen. If you are not, it will be seen openly without confusion. You have raised a very interesting question. Sorry, interesting point. And I can't recall ever thinking about things in that way because one of the things persons would mention as kind of contrasting the point you have just raised is that in a society where you say it's a little bit closed, then it will not enhance spiritual growth. But from your own purview, from your own point of view, it would have helped because you are able to show whether you are genuine or you're superficial. And so I could say you know, to you in terms of a, a question, what kind of encouragement would you give to someone who is transitioning from his or her comfort zone going into a new society where there are no friends, no family per se, what advice would you give that individual? I'm talking about someone of faith as to how he or she can stand, like a Daniel. Yeah, I think the first thing, uh, I'm not calling UK Babylon, no. When the boys were in Babylon, I don't think they just developed their characters in Babylon. So I believe that they identified themselves before they left for Babylon. They knew who they were. So I think for someone who is going to move into a new country or region, 
make sure you know who you are, what you stand for. It's just like our children in our homes. We have to keep telling them, teaching them to stand on their own. Like I'm a pastor. My children could be riding on my spirituality. You know, they need to know what to do, what not to do, even if I'm not there. So I would say establish yourself into your identity before you go anywhere and stick to it. And if you are going to adjust a few things uh, for, for God's glory, praise be to God. Yes, praise be to God. I'm going into what I'd consider the sweet part of the interview. Today, you serve as a pastor in the UK. So, you know, what led you to pastoral ministry? I, I was reading somewhere where I recognize that you are also the co-founder of a particular ministry. I think it's Pray For Him ministry? For me, yeah. Pray For Me, right. So, you know, what led you to pastoral ministry? So before I was baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist member, I had this passion just to see people doing well, you know, to see that the need are supported. Those who are struggling, they receive all the support that they need, you know. So that, that passion, just to see goodness flourishing has always been with me. Um, and I did not know that God was actually preparing me for ministry while I was outside in the world. So when I came to church, I did not start by sitting down and go through the ranks and waiting that the Holy Spirit will reveal. And then you identify your spiritual gifts. After 10 years, someone will say, let's test him to see if he can be a good deacon. Then after 20 years, now he's ripe and ready. No, I wasn't like that. So after reading those books that I've, I've highlighted earlier, They've got so much fire in them that you can't join a church, St. Adventist, and sit. I felt like I am the one who's being asked to go and pre preach the three angels' message. I'm the one who's being asked to go in there for. So when I came to church, I was actually surprised that people are just sitting and relaxed. Why is there no agency? Because for me, it was like Jesus is coming, I think, in the next five years or three years. So I had this agency when I started in the church that I needed some counseling because I had so much fire. I like, let's go out and preach. Let's go in evangelism. Mm. Sister White said this. The Bible said this. You know, so the fire was already there. So what I did, I joined um, evangelism team. I started working with a pastor and a group of preachers, lay preachers. It was called gospel team. And would travel across the country preaching. Imagine I'm just new and I'm already preaching. And people were like, how come your information, you know, it seems as if you've been in the church for years. And I said, because I've read a lot of books within a short time, it was as if I know the history of the church, everything. So I just started in as an evangelist. I can't remember when I sat down for months and months waiting to be saved. It was not like me. So once you're an evangelist, um, and you travel to another country like England. Come, I'm coming from Zimbabwe where the membership, I think, is over 1 million Seventh-day Adventists. And coming to England where maybe we're around 40,000 in a 62 million population. So you see, 
you feel like, oh, there's work here. There's work to be done. So I just felt like, let me continue the evangelism. And as I was working in evangelism, I was taking a lot of preaching appointments from pastors. One of the pastors said to me that, yeah, it's good to be an evangelist, but sometimes you limit yourself. But if you're in full-time ministry, you've got so much platform. You can do whatever you want to do. You've got the platform to do a lot. So why can't you join the seminary? I never wanted to be in theology. I felt like I was equipped. But then I got counseling from some old pastors in Zimbabwe. They said, no, environment where you are, it's important, I think, for someone to have some academic you can still use the knowledge that you uh, obtained from evangelism, uh, yes. So I went and I did my BA, I finished, I did my master's, I finished, and I uh, was employed uh, in the North England Conference. So I've been a pastor employed for 10 years, nearly 10 years now. So that's, that's, that's the journey to where I am now. Wow, that, that is pretty Awesome. Pretty awesome. And, you know, you spoke about the counsel that you would have received from some of your elders. Of course, some of them would have been pastors. And I recall a story in the Bible. I can't recall currently if it's Jeroboam or Rehoboam, but you can let me know which one. But when he was appointed king, he went to his elders and he says, he said to them, you know, what should I do in order to be an effective leader? And they told him, well, your father before oppressed us. And so if you want to be a good king, then lighten our burdens. He said, okay, give me some time. And we know the story. He went to those who were of his age group. They gave him advice. He said, well, if your father asks them to make bricks, don't give them this straw. Let them go and do their hunting. So in your case, you listen to the advice of the elders. So, you know, for young persons who think, I don't want to hear <laughs> from a senior, from your experience, what would you say to a youth like that? What I can say is I would listen to everyone who's trying to give advice. The reason why I don't fear to listen to advice is that I have to identify myself first. So when you know who you are, it doesn't matter what is being said to you, you'll be able to ascertain that says the Lord. So if the advice is in line with the word of God, then we go for it or we have a try. But if it's not in line with the word of God, whether it's coming from parents, whether it's coming from siblings, from spouses, uh, I have to find some kind words to, to dismiss it. Um, the reason why people fear it is because they don't know who they are. So once you know you are who you are, if you, if you are in a crowd of 100,000, if people are going to praise the enemy, for example, you are not going to praise the enemy just because 100,000 people are praising the enemy. You keep quiet. So um, I think for me, the idea of knowing who you are and what God says is always key. That guides you because there's a lot of information these days. Some come through the pulpit, some come through 
meetings, some through counseling, or sometimes informal. Um, as long as you know who you are in the Lord and how you relate with the Lord, God will be able to inspire you to say, this is it. And most the one way to measure it, is it in the word? Is it aligns with the word of God? So I'm not going to be blind and say, just because you are old, you have to tell me what to do. There are some older people I have not listened to. If I had listened to every old person and young person, I wouldn't be a pastor. <laughs> As you say, knowing, knowing who you are and being able to identify what is godly wisdom. Your prayer ministry, we have always heard it said that prayer is like the right hand of ministry, or if you don't pray, you can't do effective ministry. But you have here a prayer ministry. For me, prayer ministry. You know, what was the idea behind this ministry? And today, what's the composition? Maybe how often do you meet? That kind of a thing. Pray for me started when we were at university studying theology. So me and my friend, a colleague, we agreed that we are not going to stop preaching just because we have started studies. Because there are some situations where people have been working very hard in evangelism. And when they started seminary, they stopped preaching. They are just focusing on Greek and Hebrew. We said, no, the God who brought us here is the one who brought us here. We are not going to stop. We are going to balance. So we continued at school going out, and then that time, I think um, we were having a lot of prayer requests. So what we did, we said, whenever you preach weekend, when we come back Monday, we catch up on what we have been, how the weekend was, and then we will share prayer requests from the churches where we have preached, and then we pray for those names. Some of them, if we think it's serious, we contact the pastor or set up some meeting, some fasting days and so on. So the, 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 the prayer list grew bigger. And then the, some of the people we prayed for, they would call us and give testimonies. So the number of testimonies began to grow. And we felt like, huh, we've never seen anything like that. So these people now communicated with their friends and family and it's growing, growing. So we started having like a telephone prayers where we just call people. We say the next hour, we'll be calling people to pray with them. So we just call people on the phones every morning and in the evening. We just call people and pray and set fasting days. So it became people had never seen anything like that. You know, some people were like in this uh, society environment, people are lonely sometimes. So just to receive a call, someone to pray with you. Ah, oh, they enjoyed it. And then WhatsApp came. And then we, I think we are one of the first groups who started setting up WhatsApp groups. Those days, it used to take only 50 people in a group. So we had group A, it was four. Group B, group C, D. Now we are up to group Z. And then we added group one, two, three, four, five, six on top of the alphabet. So each group now has got 256, I think. And then we have um, Facebook page as well. We've 
I think we have 9,000 followers and participants. Um, and then we have representatives across the world. So we do 40 days of prayer and fasting every year in October, around October, November, depending with our timetables, whichever time we set. And it attracts like 10,000 participants across the world. So we have representatives now in China, in Qatar, in um, Dubai, Zimbabwe, Botswana, South Africa, Zambia, Malawi, all of Southern Africa, because we are from Southern Africa. So we are driving the whole of Southern Africa. Then West Africa, then England, we have France, we have Canada, United States, we have Barbados, we have Grenada, we have Jamaica, we have everywhere in the world now. Australia, we have actually a group just to and pray for me, Australia. So when we are doing 40 days, we have people who are always there. So we have got a 24-7 WhatsApp and Zoom uh, ministry. So 24-7 Zoom, if you join now, there'll be people praying. But every morning we have a, a preacher, a pastor, an, an elder who preaches every morning, 6 a.m. And uh, every Wednesday we fast. And then we have a session in the morning and afternoon. So we do this in between the fasting days. So we have special days, fasting periods like the 40 days, 10 days of prayer. When the general conference is having theirs, we have ours. We have also sometimes two weeks, sometimes seven days, just depending where. But 40 days is the big one. When we do it, it attracts a lot. We're talking about thousands and thousands of participants. Yeah, so that's, that's pray for me. I recall you mentioned the Facebook page, Pray For Me. But I just decided to check and I'm seeing more than one pages with that name. So in case someone is interested, maybe you could just share exactly where and maybe which one of the uh, Facebook pages is actually yours. Yeah, uh, I was, oh, I'm forgetting I'm on radio. <laughs> I wanted to show you this. So the page has got a young lady, a picture in the small circle, and then the bigger uh, background picture, there's a man lifting up his hand. You see it. The one with 9.8K followers, and that one, that's ours. That one is just mainly for, to drop in your prayer request in the message. For the WhatsApp, I can leave my number here. If anyone wants to take my number, and then we can link them up because you need a link, a Zoom link. So my phone number is UK number, Class four four seven four seven seven six five six five nine seven. Class four four seven four seven seven six five six five nine seven. Pastor Pardon change line. So you can send me a WhatsApp text, and then I will give. I, will, I can forward the link. Awesome. And the next question, which it's kind of me playing, you know, would say the devil's advocate. Why so much praying? I mean, why do we need to be praying so much? Um, I, I can't remember which book by Ellen White, which says prayer is the answer to every problem in life. 
it puts us in tune with divine wisdom. But we do not pray in certain situations because from our standpoint, the outlook is hopeless, but nothing is impossible with prayer. So there are so many, I mean, I don't know about you, but I pray for everything. If I go for shopping, I have to pray that I find something that is still nice and affordable. It works for me. I've come to a point where I pray for everything. So for those young couples or young people who are looking for a life partner, I mean, you can't just say I'm going to live with someone the rest of my life without praying to God, the creator. You pray. You're looking for a job. You want a job that will help you and support your Christian beliefs. You better pray for that. If you're going to start a project, we're living in a time where people are not straightforward. You need to work with people you can trust. Then pray for those people. You are living in a society where people can just drive into you, you know, out there, a drunkard, whatever. You need God's protection. How do you know that you're going to arrive where you're going? But prayer gives you that assurance. And it's not just about praying for things to be done by God in your life. It also helps you to develop that strong spiritual link with God. And just to know that you have got someone to talk to and uh, who is more powerful than your parents, who created your parents, who is more powerful than any politician, who is more powerful than any billionaire. As a pastor, I have to deal with the different kinds of people. And I've seen that people need the Lord. Yes, that song by Steve Green. It says people need the Lord. Earlier, you spoke about that passion, that desire you had for for evangelism, which transpired into you becoming a full-time evangelist. And as I listened to you share that desire, contrasting the amount of Christians in Zimbabwe versus the amount in the UK, I couldn't help but reflect on the scripture passage when Jesus says, truly the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. I mentioned that to say, you know, what would have been some of the challenges, difficulties you would have had serving now as a pastor for close to 10 years, but doing evangelism for maybe 20 years by now? What would have been one of the greatest challenges you'd have faced as it relates to ministry, reaching souls, getting others to join, to assist in ministry? So some of the challenges that I face is that I had to change approach. I was coming from a country where you can just pitch a tent in an open space and get some megaphones and get a a singing, praise team, whatever. People come. No flyers, no posters. People come and they gather. I remember some years ago, we went with our team into an open space. Um, We did what I said. We pitched the conference tent. We did music, megaphones. People are coming. The first Sabbath, so we're going to preach for three weeks. The first Sabbath, there were like 12 people. But all I can say, on day 21, we baptized 88 people. So that's a church there already. 
So now you're coming into the British context of Adventism, where um, it's almost illegal. You can't just, it's illegal actually. You can't just pitch a tent in the open space. So you have to go through the council, you have to use the right spaces. The weather is not really that friendly that people can just say, I'm going out just like that. Um, there are so many laws, there are so many procedures, health and safety and things like that, that you have to follow. Um, so I, I had to confront a cultural barrier. Um, you can't just knock people's, you know, door to door. You can't just knock people's houses and telling them, come to my church. Why should I come to your church? <laughs> Who are you? You're an immigrant. Why should I come to you? You can't even speak <laughs> proper English. Why should I come to your, to, your, to your church? You know, that kind of attitude sometimes you, you, you face. I remember when we were in, in North London, we were trying to do door to door. We had to face some of these challenges, you know. So you go back again and think, does it mean that evangelism doesn't work in this society? Does it mean that Jesus only died for people in Zimbabwe? No. He also died for people who are here. You are dealing with a postmodern culture. Yeah. Not a Christian country, but also not only that, a multicultural country. So you've got the Afrocentric corner, you've got the Eurocentric, you've got the East European, you've got the Caribbean, you've got the American, you've got all cultures, you've got Chinese, you've got Japanese, Koreans, you've got everything, everyone. And remember, this society is not open as well. Already it's a closed society. So you have to find the methods. So one of those was small groups through connections, through relationships at work, at school, at university, through uh, university students gatherings, and sometimes uh, campaigns as well, but with advertising, proper advertising, booking the wall in time, uh, putting out the flyers, encouraging people. One of the things that I found working for me is instead of just preaching in the open or just preaching for the sake of preaching, is to actually ask members to invite people they know already. You've got friends, you've got family who are not Adventists, who are not believers. You know 10, just bring one, just bring one. So if a church of 50 brings one each, then we've got a, another 50 people. So that's another method that I found way. Reach one, reach one, just get one, bring one. And the small groups, home groups, cell groups, where you study Bible study with your friends. And I also started um, a Friday Vespers in our house where I invite, bring your friends kind of setup and people bring their friends. And so what we used to do is we would uh, prepare some refreshments. So we, we start with music and they have like a Bible study. And then we pray for the needs, for the challenges that people are facing. And then after that, we have our refreshments. So these people, over a time, they end up coming to church. So you're coming from a place where you've just baptized 80 people, and suddenly you're entertaining five strangers in your home, 
with their friends. I think it calls for humility when you change location. Be humble. Don't insist on using the methods in Rome that you used in Jerusalem. So be humble and be relevant. Contextualize, you know, understand the culture. Don't be on the negative front. Be on the positive. Understand that they did not grow up where you grew up. So that calls for humility, understanding. And that's what education helped me as well, to understand that there is a context. You know, there's a context. So contextualize, we call it critical contextualization. Understand where you are and the needs of where you are. So repackage, repackage yourself and your approach. (laughs) Powerful way of putting it. And you have also brought to the fore the idea of small group ministry. You know, there are some individuals who still struggle with the concept of small group ministry because they think that they need to be, you know, versatile in scriptures and so on. But as you put it, I have a friend or I have several friends, just invite one or two, and I'm sure they will want to understand what it is that I'm benefiting from. This question, it's simple in a sense, but can be difficult depending on who. In a conversation of someone who has never heard about God, what would you tell him or her about God from your own personal perspective? So in another sense, who is God for pastor? Yeah, uh, one of my advantages in dealing with people in that situation is that I know what it is to be a non-Seventh-day Adventist. And I, I know what it is to be a Seventh-day Adventist. So I understand where I was and how my worldview was like. So you need to understand that people seeing the world, they don't see it the same way. Because sometimes as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we see the world the way we have always seen it. And then we think, oh, everyone is seeing the way we are seeing it. I try to understand it. Where are they? I try to understand their worldview. How do you see the world? You know, and through that conversation, I'm able to to understand the person I'm trying to win for Christ, understand the situation, the context, the environment, the worldview of the person first, and then share, in my case, I would share my story from where, how I used to see the world and how God helped me to see the world through scripture. And also I'll encourage them to say, while we are going to look at scripture or while they understand my experience, I think one of the best things that we can share is your experience, your story. My testimony is the best. I don't even write notes. It is the best one I have ever preached because it's me. Even Abraham never heard that. Even Jacob, my story. He had his story. You know, I hear people say, God of Abraham, God of Jacob, God of Isaac. What about my God? My own story, my own experience, I think is the powerful sermon that I can preach. So your story with the aid of the Holy Spirit, inspiration becomes a powerful testimony. So when your story is presented, know how to present your story as well so that 
even the one who's listening might say, ah, I didn't, I don't have a story. I want to have a story as well, you know? So that's what I think. And also there's a verse in Jeremiah 29. I think people love the one verse 11, which says, I've got plans for you to prosper you. I like verse 12 as well. It says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. That's the verse that I was given in the Bible study. Because I was trying to ask certain questions and the people were studying with me when I was starting in my early days in, in my faith journey. They could not answer every question, but they said, you know what? In your own space, talk to God. We can see your sincerity. Show that to God in prayer and see what will happen. And for sure, I've got a story to tell. So, yeah, a couple of things there to convince or to win someone for Christ. That's a powerful one, sharing your own story. Because when I was much younger, I would have been interfacing with some of my youth, some a little older than me, some a bit younger. And that's one of the things they often said. You are telling me about Jesus. You are telling me about Daniel. You are telling me about Jacob. But what about your encounter with Christ? And maybe last week or so, I was saying the very same thing with someone who was pretty close to me, that we don't share our experiences enough, especially experiences of success. And so when a young person listens to us, when we testify, basically, we speak about some small things. We don't talk about the big things that God does for us. And so the youth listening starts to look at the church, starts to look at Christians as if, you know, God doesn't do anything significant for us. And they are more enticed to go out into the world because the persons there, you know, they are experiencing big things. But if we talk about our big experiences of God, then it becomes a bit more appealing. My final question for you today has to do with, would say, projections, you know, for the future. You have been serving for, let's say, a decade now as a pastor, but has been evangelizing. You have a ministry, pray for me. What is next on the horizon? Maybe another five, 10 years. Yeah, so what I've been picking from prayer ministry and from my district and uh, the churches that I've pastored is that humanity has got a relationship and spirituality problem. If I were going to set up a ministry, I would look at relationships and spirituality. I think you cannot avoid those two in any stage of life, at any point in life. You better know how to relate with people at school, at work, at university, in marriage, at church. And relationships impact our lives. People you relate with, you rub on their characters. They rub on your character. We pick characteristics. We, we pick traits and behavior from the people who relate with us, who spend more time with us. So if you know how to relate or to be related to, it helps in terms of developing your spirituality. Some people don't care about who relate with them or how they relate with other people. So they just leave randomly. People can just give them nicknames that they don't like. They just joke with them, the jokes that they don't enjoy. 
jokes that maybe undermine their value and God's values. And because they've not mastered how to relate, they just accept anything that comes in, whether it is rubbish or not, because they don't value how they relate and how people relate to them. And it distorts the, the character of God that is supposed to be seen in us. And then go into marriage, relationships. Again, you don't know how to relate. So you need to know how to relate with yourself. And you need to know how to relate with people. And people need to know how to relate with you. I would rather have people say, oh, Pastor Patton is here. I'm going to change my language. Yeah. You know, because I get um, suffocated if you go into a space where people are swearing. I can't just sit there and say, ah, no, no, no. You need to stop swearing when I'm around. You need to know who is in your space now. So we need to have that those values because it affects us. By beholding, we become changed. So we are talking about relationship with your wife, with your husband, with your siblings, with your parents, with your relatives, with your colleagues, with your classmates, people at church, people at work. Now, how do do you manage this relationship properly without compromising and without just pleasing people, but pleasing God? It means you have to have a better relationship with God that inspires and empowers how you relate with the rest of the people around you and the rest of the situations around you. And that relationship with God develops your spirituality side as well. So I think it's an area that we don't really invest in. And it affects, I don't know how many couples that I have to deal with. Um, I, I had to deal with um, the past few months. Some younger, some are older than me. They just can't relate because they've lost their relationship with God individually. If you cannot relate with God and the other side can't relate with God, how are you going to relate? Two sinners trying to relate, they will kill someone or they will kill each other. So can you imagine people who are not related, don't have a stronger relationship with God. They're trying to lead the church and they're trying to lead people who don't also have a relationship with God. What kind of gathering is that? Or in marriage or in family or in, in any place. So how do you manage a healthy relationship? Then the spiritual side comes in. If I were to write a book, you have to bring that spiritual aspect then that relationships cannot work properly outside God. Otherwise we are doomed. I will encourage you to write. (laughs) (laughs) My guest today is Pastor Pardon Chendere. He's a pastor of the the Northampton Central Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, Pastor, just before we go, as is customary on this show, do you have any parting words to share with our listeners? It's Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, which says, Let this mind which was in Christ Jesus be in you. I think there's a lot there that I can dissect from the text. Um, We should put a lot of energy in asking the mind which was in Christ Jesus, the character which was in Christ Jesus. 
We ask you for so many things in our prayer requests. We pursue a lot of so many things. And if we don't have the mind which was in Christ Jesus, can we actually say we are Christians? We become another grouping, another group of people who are just there for something that they're not so sure of. Our value is found in the character and mind which was in Christ Jesus. Let's pursue that. Something to pursue. You've been in tune to Upward Way. Do join us again next week when we'll have another interesting guest sharing his or her story of faith. Subscribe to weekly episodes on the Apple, AWR, Loud Voice, Spotify, Stitcher, or Podcast Guru apps. You're also welcome to visit Upward Way Facebook page, click like, and leave a comment. Until then, I am Marlon Walters saying goodbye. May God bless you. You've been listening to the Upward Way Podcast, the number one audio production show for people who want encouragement and reassurance in a muddled world. 